Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. We are the preeminent podcast and video stream dedicated to the old American Wrestling Association, taking it down memory lane, trying to relive some of the memories that uh, a lot of people have, no matter if you were there in the beginning, the middle, the end. If you've got an AWA memory, we are going to do our very best to uh, to get into it. As you can see on the screen, my name is Chris Tubbs. I am one of the uh, the three-man band here. Let's bring in the other two, uh, George Shire and Mick Karch. And guys, we got another special edition here because we continue to get a lot of feedback. People still have, I mean, we've just started scratching the surface on a lot of the, the uh, topics, but we still have a ton of uh, a ton of questions that people have. So we've got our second ever uh, no DQ and A. And uh, George, why didn't you go ahead and start it out? I mean, uh, I know immediately when we brought it up, you got a ton of response, just like almost instantaneously. Absolutely. And, you know, we had our first episode where we did the no DQ and A, and we tried to answer a lot of questions. But when we announced the second one, Chris, uh, my email, uh, literally, it's been flooded. I keep reminding folks that we're going to do our best to cover as many as we can, but we will save them. And eventually everybody's going to get their question answered. It just may not be on this particular episode, but we got a, we've got a great bunch of questions today. And Chris, you have those questions and you will uh, deliver them to Mick and I, and we'll, we'll do our best. Yeah. And uh, same with you, Mick. I, I know that uh, you said, you know, on your email and Facebook page, just like George, like people instantly, the minute that we mention it, People are instantly, they, they want to get their questions in. And that's great. I mean, I think people continue to just, the more that we tell them or the more that you guys tell them, the more they want to know. You know, it's so great because it's like kids in a candy store. And that includes us, not just the listeners. You know, the, the people will come up with a, whatever happened to, you know, that's the one that I get the most of all, whatever happened to this guy and that guy. And they come up with names when I, you know, even we don't think of sometimes. So I think it's a great concept, and we uh, I think we're going to be doing it like every four or five weeks. Mm-hmm. Keep the questions coming. That's why we're here. Yeah, We want to have some fun. And if we don't get to it this time, don't worry about it. We, we've got questions that are banked, and anything that we don't get to, we will roll over. So by all means, go to Slick Mick Old School Wrestling, George Shire's Wrestling Time Machine on Facebook, on Twitter, uh, at AWA Unleashed, and uh, we got some really cool things that are coming up. So um, you know, stay tuned for that. Uh, before we get going, guys, um, we got the trivia question here, and I want to get to it, Mick. But uh, I know that this was kind of a tough week on a, a couple of various fronts, and uh, one of those I know was uh, pretty special to you. You know, this is getting to be like way too much you know as we say all the time the the passings just seem to be more and more frequent uh a name maybe not familiar to a lot of wrestling fans the general public uh but if you were an awa aficionado back in the 80s uh, mike shields was the tv producer for the awa and there's a picture of mike right there uh he passed away unexpectedly uh not that long ago when I first came on board with the AWA, Mike was the guy, and of course, uh, under him was Polish Joe Chupik. Uh, they were and Al Derusha. That was kind of the the crew for Vern and the production company. Uh, Mike Shields was with the AWA, and then he went down to the, uh, I, I believe, the Tennessee area. Did a lot of production for television down there. 
Uh, Mike was a hell of a guy, and we lost contact as so many people do. And then all of a sudden, you you know, somebody's on Facebook. Um, you know, you, you you come back, and uh, 30 years later, here he is. Just a quick Mike Shield story. When I first was working with the AWA, I was getting my feet wet doing commentary um, with a monitor in front of me. Believe it or not, the independent shows, you didn't have the monitor. And I know there was one match in particular, Medusa Michelli was in the corner of a wrestler as his manager, and she was doing something in the corner. And I started calling it, you know, like, look at Medusa Michelli. What is she doing over there? Well, the camera was not on her at the time. Mm. The camera was focused on something else. And then Mike sure. in my ear says, you stupid SOB. It's not on the monitor. It didn't happen if it did not make its way to the monitor. You don't address it. Yeah. And it pissed me off at the time. But in retrospect, it's like, you know, <laughs> your least favorite teacher is the one you remember because you got the most out of it. Yeah. And I never did that again. If it's not on the monitor, it hasn't happened yet. But, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, again, Mike Shields, God bless you, buddy. Thank you for the memories and uh, helping me to get my foot in the door. And we're going to be talking with uh, with Joe. And I'm excited because for my full-time job, I am a producer and a host at a radio station here in the Twin Cities. So, well, not host, not air, whatever. Um, but to me, I, I enjoy that side of it. And when you told me that, I, I can completely understand where the producer is coming from. But, I mean, if you don't have a monitor, I mean, like, how are you to know? So I'm really excited to talk to, to Joe next week. Because oh. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun for maybe a completely different look that maybe people probably wouldn't realize. If you don't have good production value, your show completely goes to shit. And then, you know, that's a little tease for our next show. Polish Joe Chupik yeah. uh, will be uh, with us talking about the AWA in the late 1980s when he was there, when it was all going down for TV. And I mean, literally down, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but Joe is a hell of a guy, and that's going to be a great episode. Get some inside uh, stuff from Joe, no doubt. I would second that, and my condolences to Mike Shields. I only met him one time. That was when I was at the studio with uh, Greg Gagne one time and had a chance just to briefly chat with him. So I didn't know him like Mick, but obviously it's sad, and he was part of the AWA. With Joe Chupik next week, boy, you, he is. He's a super guy, and he's a good friend. And, you know, the values, and you talk about production, Chris. Mm -hmm. If we didn't have guys like Joe Chupik and Mike Shields and Al Darusha and all of the other great producers of All-Star Wrestling, it wouldn't have come off the great program that it was. So these guys, we need them, and we need to, you know, give them attention, too. And Joe's with us next week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, good production can add to a show. Bad production can, can absolutely kill it. Before we get into the uh, the no DQ and A, um, we do have a trivia question from last week, Mick. And I do want to say that when we when we give these trivia questions, uh, because we do have so many shows, we have some shows that are banked. We've got a forty eight hour, so forty eight hours from when it drops. So this show is going to drop on March 29th. Um, you'll have till March thirty first to uh, to answer. And as a matter of fact, let me bring that up here, guys. I know we're kind of spending. Uh, a little more time on it, uh, but I just want to, uh, I just want to go ahead and reiterate that you will have 48 hours, March 31st, to either email Mick or email George 
and let them know the uh, the answer to the uh, trivia question. But uh, without uh, any further ado, let me uh, let me go ahead and give this to you, Mick. Oh, by the way, that's also a good reason to subscribe as well because you know when this drops, and you can watch it within an hour. You know, watch it within forty eight hours because beyond that, we get so many. Uh, so many submissions and when we get these submissions they're kind of they're drawn at random so we've got one winner uh you can only win once every 30 days kind of like radio uh because we have multiple and that's great keep keep them coming but again 48 hours uh so definitely subscribe on youtube um wherever you get your podcast i know youtube is a big thing um and we definitely want to continue to push that but uh mick without uh, any further ado uh go ahead and give the uh, the answer to this week's trivia question well, I'm surprised somebody got this. Uh, Jack Horner, the question was, in AWA history, what was the uh, the relevance of a man named Jack Horner? And he was the ringside commentator, along with Marty O'Neill, back in the early days of the AWA. Uh, not for a long time, but he was one of the pioneers for AWA TV. And congratulations uh, to, uh, to our, our trivial winner uh, this week. And uh, that would be uh, Mr. Mr. Kehoe. Uh, congratulations to Ryan Kehoe, and you've done it again, pal. And uh, Jack Horner, uh, another blip on the AWA radar over the years. I, I thought it was Merle Larson. Merle Larson is actually the shout-out this week. So that's uh, that's on me. So we'll, we'll flip-flop that. Well, shit. I would uh, I would like to throw something in about Jack Horner. You know, he did have a coffee break with Marty O'Neill and All-Star Wrestling, and that's true, and I'm amazed somebody got that. But he was a popular uh, WTCN-TV, which is where All-Star Wrestling originated from in those days. He was a very popular sportscaster, and he had a show called Jack Horner's Sports Corner, and he was one of the first guys that ever had a joint sports team along with Frank Butel, who is another name that old WTCN listeners would remember. And it was the Butel-Horner Sports, and they were innovative, and they were the first ones. Mm -hmm. That's more than people needed to know, but Jack Horner, of course, he did play a spot in All-Star Wrestling. Jack Horner Sports Corner. It just sounds good. He didn't even pull a plum out of his pie. Oh, that sounds – yeah, I mean, that's that's pretty cool. That's great for great for marketing and everything. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, now that we've killed 10 minutes, um, and I know that we've got, we usually have to bulldoze through these pretty quick. Uh, let's uh, go ahead and get started here. Um, first of all, uh, I want to ask you, I've got a question here, uh, one from Twitter from um, uh, at John Ramblings on Twitter. What was the reaction? And I'll let you start with this one, George. What was the reaction from fans around the territory when The Wrestler came out? the movie, The Wrestler, how did they react seeing Vern, Billy Robinson, and others on the big screen? Well, if you're talking locally, which obviously it was for here, it was huge. I mean, there was a good response to it. You know, the fans were aware that the matches were being taped for that movie in the old St. Paul Auditorium, downtown St. Paul. And they, they realized all the names that were in it. It was pushed heavily. It was AWA oriented. But when you look at that wrestling list and we could, you know, spend 10 minutes listing all the stars that were in that movie, plus Ed Asner being the big star mm -hmm. and he had the Mary Tyler Moore ties. 
I guess it was based in Minneapolis for her show as well. And so it had a lot of response, very popular. And Mick and I, we had the opportunity to actually go to the premiere at the uh, France Avenue a Man Theater in uh, Bloomington. So it was a huge night, spotlights all over the place and red carpeting and every wrestler in tuxedos with their respective uh, wives or partners that night. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a regular Hollywood premiere. It was huge. All right. Uh, got another one here from Twitter from uh, jrick 89 And uh, I'll throw this one at you, Mick. This is kind of a, a last minute one. I'm a St. Paul guy. My grandpa used to tell me stories of seeing the Crusher driving down University Avenue. What wrestlers lived in St. Paul specifically and what parts of the city? Do we do we know? Like, I mean, was it a common occurrence to see just wrestlers out and about? I think you heard that periodically, or at least people would claim that they saw a wrestler. You know, it might have been a big guy with red hair and somebody said, hey, I saw Larry Hennig at the, you know, at the 7-Eleven. Um, as far as... Who lived in St. Paul? Uh, I really don't know. Uh, I know that uh, Nick Bockwinkel lived in Mendota Heights for a while and, and Egan and in that area. Uh, as far as seeing Crusher uh, in St. Paul, my guess is that if you did, if he was driving, he was going east on 94 and he was going back to Milwaukee. Uh, I'm not real sure about that, but I didn't hear a lot about guys living in St. Paul. I want it noted right here that Karch has just taken a couple of shots at the fans. It wasn't me, guys, today. Did you notice how he tries to shift? He tries to project that blame when we know how full of shit this guy is. Anyway. Wait a minute. What? For for your information, I am not full of what you just said. I had my morning duty before. He'll say one word. He'll say one word that we don't want him to say, but he won't say shit. You notice that? I know. One word we don't want him to say, he says. Oh, with a capital M? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. We All have right, another question, Chris? Yes, yes. we do. Um, <laughs> this one's for you, George, uh, from Charlie the Fever. Who was the wrestler that the Sheik attacked on TV when the wrestler tried to stop Sheik from abusing his lady valet? Well, we talked about that just the other day on an episode, and it was um, Tito Santana. Absolutely one of the great talented baby faces as we discussed in our baby face episode. So Tito Santana. And, there he uh, is. Yep, there's uh there's Tito right there. Uh got a question for you here, Mick, from uh Carla Brown. Whatever happened to Steve Olsenowski? <laughs> Steve O. Uh tremendous guy. Steve Olsenowski, a Vern Ganya trainee. Uh, Steve's dad, Larry, actually played football for the University of Minnesota. Steve had a great career as a babyface, not only here in the state of Minnesota, but uh, he was actually a national heavyweight champion in Georgia. Look at him there. That's that's not his ring attire. Uh, Steve went into the insurance business uh, once he got out of wrestling. God, he, he looks too professional to be in the wrestling business. Oh, Steve was just a tremendous, tremendous guy. And a lot of people know that when Sherry Martell was here in the state of Minnesota in the AWA, and she was actually uh, living with the man under the, the mask for the AWA, Ninja Go, who was an actual, he was a Japanese uh, native, Japan native. When he had to leave and go back to his homeland, Steve Olsonowski, old Steve-O, 
donned the Ninja Go outfit, and he uh, was at ringside for the AWA, and sad to say, a lot of people knew it. You know, they were yelling, Steve Go, Steve Go. <laughs> so, uh, it, it didn't quite work out, but Steve is, is still alive and, quick, and kicking. We see him at some events around town. Love the guy. Great, great friend. All right, got uh, another one for you here, George, from uh, Jerry Frilseth. I remember in the magazines always seeing some territories having lots of masked wrestlers. How come the AWA only had Dr. X and the Super Destroyers? Well, to answer that question, I would say the AWA didn't just have Dr. X and the Super Destroyers. The Super Destroyers, the three of them were Mark II and Three, which were uh, Bob Remus and Neil Gway. Bob Remus, of course, later Sergeant Slaughter. We had Don Jardine as the Super Destroyer. But we also had the masked Mr. M, Dr. Ah. Big Bill Miller. He was one of our first. And, man, he was over. And he was the AWA champion for eight months. We also had uh, Double X, Dr. X's super secret lookalike partner, Double X Jim Osborne. And we had the Texas Hangman. Later on, mm-hmm. the AWA, which was comprised of uh, uh, three guys, their names are escaping me right now, took the masks. But uh, we had Tony Nero, who was uh, known as Mass Man. And so they're not the only ones, Dr. Mm-hmm. X and the Super Destroyers. But Vern wasn't big into the masked wrestlers. That was something, if you did go down south, and I can tell you this was weird. You'd go down to sometimes in Florida or Atlanta or the or Tennessee, and they'd have five, six, seven mass wrestlers on a card. And that's mm-hmm. overdoing the gimmick. And I mean, it's just crazy. You know, the gimmick was so special, it deserved the attention that Vern gave it and used it right. All right. Uh, question for you here, Mick, from Stan Gray. You said he read somewhere that Kurt Hennig suffered a bad injury during AWA strap match with Wahoo on TV. What do you remember about that? I was there at ringside. It was at the showboat in Las Vegas. And the interesting thing about it, it was the, you know, your, your typical Indian strap match. The two guys are attached to each other by a, a length of strap, leather strap. And Kurt was healing, of course, at the time. There's there's old Curtis. And Adrian Adonis came to ringside, and the finish of the match was going to be, he was going to cut with the scissors. He was going to cut Kurt loose from the strap so that Kurt could beat up on Wahoo. Well, somehow or other, Adrian misfired a little bit. And this is a big scissors. I mean, this isn't just, you know, your your blunt edge kid scissors. And he cut Kurt between the thumb and the forefinger, that kind of fleshy area there. And he really did a number on him. And I believe it's out there someplace on YouTube. I believe uh, it's like that that part of the hand right, right yeah. there. Yes, sir. He yeah. got him, and he got him good. And uh, Kurt needed to be stitched up, and uh, you know it. It happens, you know, obviously not intentionally, but it was pretty serious at the yeah. time. I remember Kurt was obviously not very happy yeah. at the moment. And, and I, I've had an injury to that part of my hand, guys, like several times. I mean, I've cut it. I've got like UCL injuries and everything. And and I can tell you right there, it is a tough, tough place to have. Yeah. An injury right there because I mean you it's because of the flexibility it's hard to stitch up and you've got the nerves so mm-hmm. I mean I, I could understand where 
you wouldn't think in that little bit of the hand, but that is a pretty, that could be a pretty significant injury. Oh yeah. And, and it was. All right. My dad had a knife go through here, come out over here, just like oh. you about. He was yeah. using a knife to chop, yeah. which is which is crazy. But it went right through, and I was 14, and I saw the blood squish out, and I yep. grabbed the towel right away. And, of course, he took about 10 stitches, but it literally went right yeah. through that section. Yeah, I, I cut. I, I was actually uh, chopping, or not chopping, I was um, dislodging some turkey burgers years ago. That's why I don't eat turkey burgers anymore. Um, oh, but, but, yeah, I, I know, right? But, yeah, I had it stitched up, and it was – it, it sucks. So, I mean, that I didn't know that was the injury to Kurt, but I can only imagine. I mean, that's not that's not an easy one to, uh, to come back from. All right. Uh, for you, George, from uh, Paul um, uh, Partica. I hope I said that right, Paul. Uh, he was wondering, was Paul Diamond over what heel would have made a great babyface turn? Well, Paul Diamond, I'm going to assume because he didn't clarify, I'm going to assume that he meant the first Paul Diamond. But he may have meant the second Paul Diamond. There were two of them. One was Paul Diamond in the 60s, which was uh, Paul Leyland. And he was uh, really over with Jack Lance as an opponent and with Dr. X as an opponent. He was a a good-looking dude. And the ladies, I guess, loved him. And he had a good run here. Vern Gagne even teamed with him. But the other uh, Paul Diamond, later in the 80s, Tom Boric. And he was with Pat Tanaka, and they mm-hmm. were the AWA Tag Team Champion. Yeah, ba- bad Company, I believe. Bad Company, B-A-double-D, yes, along with Diamond Dallas Page, which yep. got his start. So, yes, both were over, whichever one you were talking about. And I don't know how to pronounce Paul's last name either, but I was thinking it was Partika. But he'll correct us. Either way, we love his, his question. And then before I forget, the three Texas hangmen to the last question – Yes, Yantner, Mike Richards, and Tom Bennett, and okay. I think didn't come to me right away. But as we were talking here, I caught it. Yeah, and um, yeah, I, I the, the Texas Hangman. I mean, they were one of the heel teams that I could remember. Again, when I started, because I started watching uh, in the uh, in the mid eighties. Uh, this one for you, Mick from Boz Fritz. Why didn't the AWA feature more lady wrestlers back in the day? And who do you think were the company's best female wrestlers? As far as not featuring uh, too many lady wrestlers back in the day, uh, it the business was not like it is today, where the women are featured every week and you've got a roster of you know talent that, that shows up at pay per views and etc. So it was c- kind of a unique attraction back then. So the AWA would kind of recycle the the women wrestlers. They'd come into town maybe once twice a year for special holiday shows and what have you. Um, as far as the best wrestlers in the AWA women's division, a lot of people would figure out who's going to say Medusa Michelli. Nah, I, I will say no, and I will tell you why. But first of all, one of the wrestlers that I would say is one of the greats is the late Vivian Vachon. Uh, obviously, uh, from that Vachon clan, the sister of Mad Dog and Butcher, Vivian was the real deal. She was no nonsense. She was so tough in the ring. And, uh, you know, made a movie, starred in a movie, a documentary, The Wrestling Queen. And unfortunately, she and her daughter were both killed uh, by a drunk driver um, back 30-some years ago. The, the one that I would say is the best of all is 
Sherry Martell. And not only because of Sherry's in-ring talent as a wrestler, uh, the AWA Women's Champion for a while, uh, but also, of course, her managerial skills uh, with Nick Kaniski and, and uh, I mean, she or, or Buddy Rose and, and, and Doug Summers. I'm confusing her with uh, Medusa for the managerial. But uh, Sherry could do it all. I mean, in the annals of wrestling history, I don't think there's anybody better, more personality, more versatile than Sherry Martell. And real quickly, the reason that I would not say Medusa even though she had the AWA title in 1987, she was relatively new to the business. And so she was still green. I think she would admit this herself. She didn't hit her stride until she left the AWA, went to Japan, and then, of course, a uh, storied career after that. All right. Uh, for you, George, um, I'm going to this one from uh, Steve uh, uh, Gnarly. I, geez, I'm butchering that. I'm so sorry, Steve. Um, do you think that Lord Alfred Hayes was underused in the AWA? He was a great heel and then very popular against Bobby Heenan. No, no, I, I don't think he was underutilized. I thought that Lord Alfred Hayes was given a, a very uh, prominent position during the time that he was here. You know, a lot of people have to realize that a lot of these wrestlers were only in territories for sometimes a year, two years, maybe. And there he is with Don Jardine as the super destroyer. He had a great manage run, manager run with him. He also managed, we talked about him a minute ago, the super destroyers, Mark II and Mark III. And then, you know, his feud with Bobby Heenan when he flipped into the babyface. You know, it was, it was the lesser of two evils when you have two heel managers going at it. And that was some genius promoting. Um, when super De uh, number two was sold to Bobby Heenan, and uh, num number three stayed with Hayes. I mean, it was great promoting the, the battles of the mass men. Uh, Hayes got a good push. He definitely did. He was over. He's remembered. And outside the ring, absolutely a sweet guy, a great guy. So I think he got a good run. And Steve, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your name either, man, but we love you, Steve. That's what we're going to call you. And uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, I I'm going to say it's uh, Steve Gennarly. That's uh, that's what I'm going to go ahead and and say because I think that's, that's what it looks so again, Steve. I I apologize um, if I uh, if I got it wrong. We're not saying we could spell you know pronounce it right even if he told us, but yeah, pronouncing Crunch's name. I'm I'm doing I'm doing my best. Hey, uh, for you, Mick um, from Janice Schutz. A few years ago on a wrestling website, I read your account of an incident between Vern Gagne and a referee at Vern's 1981 retirement match against Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, she thought it was hilarious. Uh, can you go ahead and share that? Real quickly, because it's a long story, the referee in question uh, was Doug Gilbert. And Doug had been a journeyman wrestler, real decent career. He started in the AWA as a babyface back in the early 1960s. And then he went, went on to a career as a heel, was a masked man for a while. But for some reason, there's Doug right there. Vern brought him in as the uh, as the special referee. Now, I don't know if, if Vern thought everybody would remember Doug Gilbert from, you know, 15 years earlier. But what happened was there's at one point in the match, Vern has Nick on the mat. And he's working on, on uh, Nick's leg. And Nick reaches around, and he's grabbing Vern to break the hole in an obvious chokehold. Obvious. 
Doug Gilbert, the referee, is like he's catatonic all of a sudden. He's on all fours. He's looking at the action, but his eyes are glazed over. This is not a part of the storyline. The man is gone. He's not attention <laughs> to what's going on in the ring. And I'm shooting pictures at the time for PWI, and Vern says, Gilbert, it's a joke. Nothing. You know, and, and, and it continues to pull back. And, again, Gilbert is – you don't know what happened. He's, if he's dreaming about the after party – What's going on? Gil, Vern again says, Gilbert, it's a choke. Nothing. Within earshot of the microphone at ringside, the TV play-by-play, Vern says, Gilbert, God damn it, you will never referee up here again. Well, that snapped Gilbert out of his uh, stupor, whatever it was. And I just lost myself here. Let me see if I can get, get it. Burn somewhere with a with a mic with a wire cutter, but uh, <laughs> yeah. he he said Gilbert, you're never going to referee up here again, which he did not. Gilbert did not. I remember Gene Okerlund doing commentary, trying to cover it up by saying, "Well, the Vern Gagne's giving the referee a little heat. They get a little heat, <laughs> you know. He just he just sent him to hell and back." Gilbert got even with Vern at the end of the night. There's an after party, and Vern is is posing for pictures with some of his friends, Bud Grant, Leo Namalini, and Gilbert photobombs Vern with his finger up his nose in the background, and we did not see Doug Gilbert up here again. Oh, that's uh, fabulous. Oh, great stuff. I would point out that Doug Gilbert, I don't know how many people did remember him that night from his stays, but he was here in 77, 78. And by 1981, he had um, basically retired from pro wrestling from his career. Sadly, he left us some years back uh, from Alzheimer's. Yeah. And uh, but a great guy outside the ring. And we could have a Doug Gilbert episode because he really did play a big part in the AWA and in pro wrestling. The uh, next one for you, George, from Ron Lagerstrom. Who were the bookers for the AWA over the years? You know, when I saw that question, and it's it's hard to it it was hard for me to come up with an answer. And I now that you're bringing it up, I'm going to have to kind of plead the fifth here. The thing about bookers that that became a later terminology in the 80s, 90s, and so forth. Back in the day, the bookers, if you want to call them that, it was Wally and it was Vern primarily that called 95% of the shots that were taking place in the business. And when I thought about the question, I know there were guys that would interject things to them with ideas, Mm -hmm. or maybe we could do it this way. But most of the angles, the storylines and, and matches that took place, it really was, it came down to Wally and Vern. They planned this stuff out. And Nick Bockwinkel did have some say in things. So did Ray Stevens and Wahoo McDaniel. But I think if you want to be fair, um, we didn't have the traditional booker like they did later on. And it really was Vern and Wally. How far in advance did they book their, their show? Did, did they have an end result like we hear now and, and they book backwards? Did you get, do you guys know what their philosophy was in, in booking the territory? Absolutely. They would go out approximately six months if they had a storyline and two wrestlers or a tag team in a program. Okay. 
and they would start with the finish and they would back it up. And this is what we were going to do to get there. Okay. Uh, this one um, for you, Mick, from Dan McClellan. And this will tie into to next week um, with Joe. It seems like wrestling today's one big TV production designed to sell pay-per-views. How does it compare to the old studio days of AWA All-Star Wrestling? Um, I, I would say in, in, in two ways, and they're not that much different. One, obviously, is in the size and the scope of the production. I don't know how much Vince McMahon spends on every Raw taping, any, every SmackDown taping, uh, with the intent to get people to buy the pay-per-view. Back in the day, it was the small studio setting with the intent to get people fired up to buy tickets to go to the auditorium or the, the armory or whatever for, for the match. So the philosophies were the same, um, but I think that that pretty much, that's where it ends. Because again, if you look at old YouTube videos or if you had the, the opportunity to be in the AWA studio back when they were taping, you know, the magic of that, nobody was holding a sign in front of your face uh, the audience was not chanting "you effed up" if you you know if a wrestler blew a spot. So uh, apples and oranges, but I think the philosophy was the same: get people into the building. All right. The next one for you, George, from Lonnie Jandro. If you could have booked the AWA title after Mad Dog held it, who would you have made champion? That's an interesting question. You know, the AWA takes criticism because Vern basically held the championship the longest. Uh, Mad Dog gave it up in 67. Vern took it back, held it for two years, had a very brief couple weeks where he lost it to Dr. X, but he won it back. So you, sometimes you don't even count that. And then he held it until 75. I always thought that what they should have done in 68 was Vern should have lost it to Dr. X. Let Doc hold it for a while because he was going to be here another couple of years yet. Could have held it for maybe six months to a year. And then he could have lost it. And this was my idea to Billy Red Lions, which would have made perfect sense. And then when Jack Lanza was being put over, have Lanza take it from Billy Lyons in 1970-ish, give or take. And finally, Vern comes back and wins it. And then it follows the natural progression to get to Nick Bockwinkle. And it would have broken it up very nicely and made sense. That's fantasy booking. For the uh, for you, Mick, um, from uh, Stephanie Erickson, writes, My grandpa used to attend the Twin Cities matches religiously and rarely came home disappointed. In all the years you went to the AWA cards, can you name a main event or two that you felt were the most forgettable? Yes. Um one, the, the more recent of the two, uh, would be Nick Bockwinkle and Andre the Giant. They went to a one-hour draw, and Andre hurt his back early in the match. And basically, Nick was uh, trying to carry 500 pounds around for 60 minutes. And marquee match on paper, but no, uh, a stinkeroo. Uh, the, the one that I recall from back in the day, a man named Boris Brezhnikov. Uh, came into town, and he wrestled the crusher in the main event. And Boris Brezhnikov, there's Boris, not an actual uh, life-size uh, photo, obviously, not anatomically correct. Uh, but Boris became Nikolai Volkov later on and uh, had a storied career. But he and the crusher 
at a main event in Minneapolis that I think went about five or six minutes. And I'm telling you, uh, if you if you had to go to the bathroom, that was the time to do it. It was it was absolutely atrocious. And this is 50 years ago, and I remember it like yesterday, which mm -hmm. kind of shows you where my life has gone for the past five decades. Couldn't tell you what I had for lunch, but I remember Boris Brezhnikov and the Crusher. I thought it was just something about going to the bathroom, but I, I maybe I misunderstood what you were talking about there. Gee. All right, to, for, for you, George, from uh, William Beta. The AWA being located in Minnesota, how come they never had a Minnesota state champion? I think that's a good question. I thought that was a very good question, but then I realized that the answer was very simple. Vern wasn't going to recognize any other champion other than his title. And again, that's probably ego, but he didn't need to have a Minnesota title because he was here and he could always defend the champion and he didn't want another wrestler associated with champion. Now, Vern's not here to defend himself on that, and but I have talked to Greg about that years ago, and uh, I think that's really what it was. Vern wasn't going to have another champion. Minnesota champion wouldn't have made any sense to him. The uh, next one for you, Mick, um, from Sean Buckridge. With the documented animosity between Vern Gagne and Eddie Sharkey, why did Vern start to use Eddie's PWA wrestlers near the end of the AWA run? You know, it's really interesting. When Eddie Sharkey was running his Pro Wrestling America promotion uh, at George's and Fridley, which was kind of the staple that was home base for them, uh, Vern and the AWA were still running, um, not consistently, but they were still running. And I remember Vern had said, there, there's Eddie with uh, our good friend, Derek Starfire Dukes. Boy, you talk about uh, Mr. High and Mr. Low. Um, but... But Vern was adamant. We're not using anybody that, you know, works at a bar or a nightclub. That's just not professional. That's, you know, so on and so forth. Well, towards the end of the AWA run, when all the major talent had gone elsewhere, uh, where do you suppose Vern looked? You had Ricky Rice. You had Larry Cameron. You had Jerry Lynn. You had Beef Burton. You had Derek Dukes. All the guys that had been working for Eddie Sharkey over at George's and Fridley all of a sudden were on AWA television. So uh, it came back full circle. So it got to the point where Vern, he had to make amends with Eddie, and as he did when he wanted to use the Road Warriors. You know, so um, it happens. You, you suddenly forget your grudge if there's a need and there's a monetary impact on you, and that's what happened with Vern and Eddie. All right, uh, let's get to the next one here. Going back for you, George. Um, from Gregory Zelinsky. whatever happened to Billy Red Lions? He seemed to disappear after his feud with Dr. X. Weird that we have another Billy question. I just mentioned his name. Billy was in the AWA from uh, 16, or 68 August until right about the end of 1970, 71, early 71. But it was typical. They came to a territory, and they were here for a while, got a push, and then they moved on. Billy left here because, this is the primary reason, Bill Watts had went down to the Mid-South Territory to work with Leroy McGurk, and Bill needed to bring in some wrestlers of note to for the new promotion. He brought in Billy Red Lions, who he had worked with and teamed with in the AWA, and he also brought in guys like Dutch Savage and Buddy Roberts 
Jerry Brown, and that's really what happened. Big Luke Brown went down there with him. That was what happened. He went down as a favor and just never really came back. And by that time, Dr. X was gone, and so the brother-in-laws weren't working in the same territory. Yeah, so really, when he left, I mean, that was pretty much the end of it then, right, George? Right. He never came back. Billy never came back here. Uh, for, uh, for you here, Mick, uh, going down, um, from Rich Shannon, how strict was Vern about keeping kayfabe? How did the AWA feel after the infamous 2020 TV expose regarding blading? Vern was an old school promoter. He was a professional wrestler and he kept strict kayfabe. I mean, it was absolutely, you followed the rules, you protected the business in restaurants, in hotels, the, the heels and the baby faces, you know, their only means of kin- communication might be a wink or a nod as they were passing each other in the hallway. Vern was vehemently opposed to exposing the business. And as far as how they reacted to the 2020 episode, I remember back then, uh, especially when, when Eddie Mansfield and Jim Wilson were on television and they exposed the use of the blade the AWA did probably the best that they could in trying to ignore it like it didn't happen. You know, just pay no attention to it. These are disgruntled guys. They don't know what they're talking about. The thing of it is, I was in a match not that long after that 2020 episode aired, and here Jerry Blackwell is in a cage match, and he's tossed into the cage and right in full view of the crowd. Jerry is facing the crowd, and he takes the blade and, and he gigs, and everybody, of course, at ringside, they've seen this 2020 episode. So not, now they know. Now they know. And they're yelling, you know, he's cutting himself. He's cutting himself. Um, so, yeah, it was, they did their best to ignore it. But, you know, in the scheme of things, it didn't make one damn bit of difference because they still packed the houses all the time yeah. and exposing the blading and everything else never affected wrestling from a dollars and cents mm. standpoint. The only thing I'd add to that is that, again, it was age. You know, we'd come to the time when there were wrestlers that were bringing out the fact that wrestling was prearranged and Vince McMahon did it. We talked about the gigging and Dr. Schultz doing his slapping of Stossel. All of that was right around that same time period. And the, the audience had changed. It had gotten younger. It was more accepting. It was the old guard and Vern being of the old guard that really had that problem with not breaking kayfabe. And, you know, that's where the magic is lost. And we Mm -hmm. as fans, it it was sad when we learned when they told how the rabbit was pulled out of the hat. It it just, it was the end of an era, but it happened. Uh, Another one for you here, Mick. I've got one more for you, George, and it's kind of multi-tiered. So I get a couple more here for Mick. Um, And then we'll get into that one. Uh, from Perry Landis for you, Mick. Why is the timekeepers watch at a wrestling show never in sync with the actual time, especially when it comes to time? I tell you what. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. Good question. If you're a watch repair man, you got to set up camp right outside a a wrestling (laughs) because depending on the circumstance, uh, a a timekeepers watch could be either fast or slow. Uh, And, there's Al Derusha, and I'm going to get to Al in just a second. But, you know, historically, a 60-minute draw, you know, might have been 53 minutes. 
uh, or so. Not quite in sync with, you know, the actual time. If you watch the Royal Rumble these days, you swear some guys come out five minutes later yeah. and the 90 seconds is up and other guys are out 15 seconds later. So <laughs> never trust a, a timekeeper's watch at, at the wrestling match. You know, five minutes elapsed time, whatever. The Al Darusha story. Uh, <laughs> I'm sitting next to Al. At a match, and I asked George about this. We couldn't remember the two opponents, but I'm sitting next to Al at ringside. He's doing the timekeeping, and the match was dreadful. It was an opening match, and I forget who was in it, but they were going to go to a time limit draw. And they're missing spots right after, right out of the get-go, one after another. And Darusha's just kind of shaking his head, and he's looking at me. And so two minutes into the match, he announces, five minutes elapsed time, five minutes. I swear to you, Chris, I turned around to, to say something to somebody. I turned back and I looked at Al and he goes, eight minutes gone, two <laughs> minutes remaining. I'm telling you, this 10-minute match was probably about four and a half. And everybody at ringside knew it too. I mean, they're seeing Al and I laughing at each other. Is it just because it was such the drizzling shit? Oh, he had to take it home immediately. I mean, it was, get these guys out of here. But again, bottom line, when you're at a wrestling card and they announce the time, don't tap on your watch. Don't check your cell phone. Don't look at the long jeans up in, in the, uh, the bleachers <laughs> because it's just not going to be in sync ever. Oh, I remember man. the time, guys, when Gene Okerlund did his very first at ringside uh, ring announcing. And this is, you know, back in the early 70s. And he said, time elapsed 10 minutes. And then he would go, time elapsed. And he got booed. True story. He got booed by the fans because, number one, it wasn't an additional five minutes in between. But no one had at that point ever said, Time elapsed, and that was the one time I remember Gene getting booed. <laughs> oh, man. Um, one more here for you, Mick, and then we'll go back to George. Uh, I always thought that Larry Nelson seemed like a decent guy and underappreciated as an announcer. Your thought? Larry Nelson, I think, was underappreciated as an announcer. If Larry had a fault, it was, be, you know, maybe he, he overdid it a little bit. Uh, people will remember when the, the blaster uh, in one of those infamous AWA moments came blasting through the, the, the background uh, while Larry was talking to Al Darusha. And uh, Larry sold it like, you know, he, he had the winning lottery ticket. Um, Larry Nelson had his demons. Uh, Larry was a party guy. Uh, he was an old radio guy from the, from the state of Minnesota, this area. Uh, Larry Shipley was his, his real name. But I'll tell you what, Larry is underestimated. He did what he was told to do. He sold as best as he could. And uh, he put the product over and he was loyal to a fault to the AWA. And uh, don't, let's not, you know, diminish the, the, the skills of Larry Nelson looking back on things. Great guy, great talent, just a little bit over the top. Last one for you here, George. Um, and again, this one's got uh, several layers to it. How did the AWA handle the gate from the smaller midweek shows? Did they have someone from the home office represent? Uh, pre uh, well, I'm gonna do that. Fuck that. Start over. 
Um, how did the no. AWA handle the gate from the smaller town? Three, two, one. How did the AWA handle the gate from the smaller town midweek shows? Did they actually have someone from the office present to handle receipts at every show? Or was it a local person trusted to gather the receipts from the live gate at local shows? And lastly, how were the wrestler payoffs handled for these irregular shows? Well, I don't know. With all the different ways you gave this question and stumbled, I'm not sure I even can answer it. Yes, I can. Okay, that's good. Uh, Moving on. Um, Okay. (laughs) So, Mick. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Go Um, ahead, George. The spot shows, typically in small towns where they'd have a gymnasium or something where they'd run a card, usually it was one of the guys, one of the wrestlers on the card that were there that were put in charge of that particular night. And they'd only have six wrestlers, four or five, six wrestlers on the card. And the wrestler was put in charge. As far as the payouts go, in the AWA, being a bigger promotion, we're not talking some little honky-tonk promotion. The AWA paid the guys on a regular basis, but not per show. So they knew okay. what they were going to get if they went So down. it wasn't based on the gate or anything then? They, no. they They knew the flat rate? They just knew. Most of the guys knew what the flat rate was. It, okay. it wasn't saying, well, you're going down there and we're going to give you, you know, 300 bucks or whatever it's going to be. It didn't work that way in the bigger promotion. Now, in a smaller promotion, yeah, there may have been some talk about that, and somebody may have paid them out. But usually, and if a promoter did pay, they usually would write out a check to the guys and then cash the check for them. Simple as that. But it was the office, and they got so much, whatever their guarantee was for a particular month or time period mm-hmm. in, in the big state, in the big AWA. Okay, and I know that's something that I want to get into a little bit deeper down the road is it just the payouts, because I know a lot of people are very curious uh, about the payouts and kind of how how that happened and, and kind of how that was distributed. Well, uh, you had instances where wrestlers would come in and say that the house is bigger than the rest and the promoter mm-hmm. is telling them and that sort of thing. And we could have a program on that because there were wrestlers that would dispute it, think the promoters, you know, jacking them around. Yeah, uh, yeah there's issues there. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's I think that's a good idea. Back in the trusting days, you know, Dr. X knew what he was going to make. Okay. And he did He did his month's worth or six weeks' worth of work and got paid. Uh, last one for you, Mick, uh, from uh, Lyle Kingsfelter. I love the work you guys are doing on the podcast. I'm such an old-school guy. I remember that some of the more obscure AWA mid-card guys, like Jack Bentz, uh, Hugo Bobbick, along those lines, what can you say about Nick Bonkwickle? having a brother who wrestled? Well, we've talked about Nick's uh, brother, uh, Bob Bockwinkle, Bob Warren, being a referee in the AWA. But Nick's half-brother, actually, uh, Dennis, Dennis Bockwinkle, uh, appeared in the AWA as Dennis O'Brien. At the same time Nick was here, he was just starting out in the wrestling business. And he was a babyface, you know, not a lot, to him. I mean, he worked a couple of uh, events in the Twin Cities area around the same time that Dennis Stamp was here. Uh, Dennis Bockwinkle went down to Texas. He developed a more rugged style. Great guy outside the ring. I got to know him personally. And sadly, uh, accidental uh, drug overdose uh, took Dennis's life. I believe he was, he was only 29 years old at the time. Uh, so never really got started never really flourished as a wrestler, but 
in AWA history, yeah, Dennis Bockwinkle, Dennis O'Brien. All right, got a few minutes left here, guys. <clears throat> let's go ahead and get to uh, let's get to the uh, let's get to the shoutouts before we get to the uh, the trivia. So, uh, George, why don't you go ahead and uh, and start us out here? You're going to have to remind me, Chris. Uh, did I have somebody that I was shouting out to? Yes, you had Dean Reynolds. Dean Reynolds. I I give him credit for being a great listener because I've gotten emails from him. And uh, he's one of these guys that kind of tells me what happened. And uh, I like him because his memory is pretty good. And he wants to know more. Mm -hmm. And I just appreciate that he listens. I don't know Dean Reynolds. I'd like to sit down with him sometime and talk wrestling. So... Keep listening, Dean, and thank you very, very much. Uh, it's it's always appreciated when you reach out to us. Yeah, and uh, Dean uh, Def enjoys our podcast on YouTube while watching with his friend Bruce Anderson. So yes, uh, and and let me point out, he he points out that Bruce Anderson is deaf, and he watches the YouTube videos. That's awesome, and and that I think is incredible. And the fact that Dean reached out with that story, um, keep listening. And in the case of his buddy, we're glad you're with us. And that's what's great about YouTube, you guys, is the fact that we've got so many visuals. We try and bring some of the visuals. So even people that you can't, even if you're you're not, you know, you don't want to listen, you kind of want an extra layer of it. That's what's so great about YouTube and being able to, to put all of these pictures and all these visuals. And I, I absolutely love that. Uh, what about yours here, Mick? This is the, the person that, that uh, again, due to my mistake, not yours for once, you know, mm -hmm. talks, not yours. Uh, oh, I, thanks. <laughs> Merle Larson. Uh, Merle, and it's uh, she's a lady. She's a gal. Uh, Merle Larson, great wrestling fan, going back for decades. Uh, she'll, she'll remember guys like Jose Quintero and George Catalina Drake and what have you. Huge fan. Of, uh, of Eddie Sharkey's as well. Uh, Merle is a regular listener and gets some emails from her. So really appreciate it as we do everybody mm -hmm. supporting us in this effort. So hello to Merle. And, and I'm going to go with Twitter to uh, Mr. Jim Diamond Esquire, who is a uh, photographer for several promotions, uh, local promotions, and favorite wrestler has been and always will be the late Kurt Henning. So uh, you, can't, you can't go wrong with that. And uh, so I, I'm grateful to everybody who's, uh, who continues to support the podcast. Go ahead, Georgie. You know, I was going to make a comment since we're doing Q&A. I had a question that someone asked me, what, you know, and Mick kind of touched on it. You got about you three talked, minutes here. When you talked about um, Dennis O'Brien, the guy asked me, he said, how come the AWA and Jack Benson's name got mentioned? He says to me, how come these guys were put over as being somebody or how could fans believe they were credible when they were older? Now, if we remember Jack Benz, he was an older wrestler, but he had paid his dues for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so he was definitely worthwhile in the ring because the boys learned from him. And that's what the idea was, putting over the new breed. I think Jack Benz was 97 when he debuted here. 
actually. So he'd been around the business for a while. Uh, let's get to the uh, last trivia question here, Mick, and uh, let's go ahead and do it, and then we'll bring it home. Okay, trivia for this week. Black Jack Lanza, uh, who was actually a Minneapolis native, great career not only in the AWA but all over the place. Uh, during his tenure, his years in the AWA, Jack was billed from two different cities. Not Minneapolis, of course, not his real hometown. Give me the name of the two cities that Jack Lanza was billed from over the years, and you're going to be a trivia winner. And uh, you got to get that to them again by March 31st. Uh, Mick Karch, gmail.com, or George Shire, uh, George Shire at Comcast.net again by March 31st. All right, guys, time to uh, go ahead and bring it home. And uh, this has been fun. And again, we, we've got more questions. I know that we didn't get to everything, but we, we've got another one of these coming up in a couple of weeks. And I believe uh, next week is Joe. Uh, we're going to talk with Joe about AWA production. And then the week after, I believe we've got a, a, a feature on Kurt Hedding. So we've got the next yes. couple of weeks already booked out. You yes. bet. Yep. Going to be fun about uh, talking about Kurt. <laughs>